Good afternoon. Welcome to Business Buzz. This is your host, Harold Littlejohn, CPA. We've got some exciting tax news today. Well, sort of. It's a little bit of a mixed bag. Depending on what your situation is, it could be could be a big deal, could be not quite so big of a deal. But as Trump has trying to get the tax bill going, he's at least got it, you know, pretty much um, the GOP has released their highlights of their plan. So I thought I'd start off with that today just to kind of go over what I think about all this. They are keeping the high bracket, which wasn't being discussed a few weeks ago. So, But the 39.6 highest individual bracket is being kept, and I think it's that's sort of going to help. It's going to help alleviate the criticism that very wealthy people get too big of a tax cut. The thing about that is, is under the new plan, apparently, the 39.6% starts at taxable income over $1 million. That's quite a bit higher than the threshold it starts at now. When it starts now, it's it's down more closer to the four to 500000 range. So uh, that high bracket is going to be there for people that make five, ten million, the the big boys. So that part of it is kind of interesting because that 39.6% was not in the talking points a month or two ago. So that's part of the compromise. Then the standard deduction, when they originally said they were going to double the standard deduction, that's the one that every family gets. And it turns out now it's not quite going to be doubled based on their talking points. Of course, remember, these are all just proposals. There's no new law yet. It's going to take a long time for the Democrats and the Republicans to hammer out all their differences and all their arguments. But I just wanted to keep you posted on the highlights of this thing. The standard deduction is almost doubled, not quite. They have a thing called a family credit, which includes the child credit going from 1000 to 1600 now, there's still a lot of details on this that I just, I don't really know. I haven't had a chance today to dig down into the actual details of this thing. I'm just giving you all the highlights. And in my opinion, if if this child tax credit is per child, that's a good thing because it's going from $1,000 to $1,600. They're also adding what's called a $300 credit for each parent, which is the, you know, if you have two people on a joint return... What that is, and I don't want to get too technical, but if if you have done your own income taxes, you get deductions for things like home mortgage interest and property tax. You also get what's called an exemption. Now, the prior proposals of this new higher standard deduction eliminated exemptions. Well, right now, the way the law works, exemptions reduce your taxable income. So exemptions are worth a different amount of money depending on which tax bracket you're in. If the exemption, is, which is around $3,000 per person, that's the current law. If you're in a 15% tax bracket, that exemption's worth $450. If you're in a 25% tax bracket, that exemption of $3,000 is worth 25% of $3,000 or $750. This new law has got what's called a credit of $300 per per adult. So that is actually going to be a reduction in the benefit that they're taking away when they get rid of exemptions. So here we go again. This is basically just monkeying with a, a broken tax system that's so complicated A lot of people can't figure it out. I've been doing taxes on a daily basis for over 30 years, and there's still things that come up that are just so complicated. You have to actually research and dig deep down into the tax code, and it's very complicated. There's a few things in this talking points that I don't see the answer to yet, which I'll keep you posted on in the next next business buzz uh, episodes uh, next week. If I can dig down by then, I'll have a lot better detail on this, but I wanted to hit the highlights with you. So it preserves the earned income tax credit. Well, that one is one where low, lower earning families get a big credit and usually pays for their whole income tax and actually gives them a refund. It's what's called a refundable credit, and it's it's a big deal. If they had got rid of that, it would have had some families actually 
losing a big chunk of money they receive every spring when they file their tax return. So that that one is, it says preserves here. I would have to look into whether they're preserving it in full or whether they're trimming it back. So I'll look into that for you too. Now, the big one that's really going to have some effect here is the preservation of the home mortgage interest deduction for existing mortgages. But for newly purchased homes, the new limit is half of the old limit. So here's how that's going to work. The law right now is on the first million of acquisition debt, you're entitled to write off the entire amount of that interest expense. So for instance, if you buy a home for a million two in the Bay Area or somewhere, and you put 200000 down and you borrow $1 million at, say, 5%, that's $50,000 a year, and that interest is fully deductible with really almost no limitations on, this, uh, on the tax return. Here's the thing they're doing now. They're saying, okay, that acquisition debt of a million, we're going to cut that in half. Now you can only claim the interest ex- deduction on the interest on 500000 Now, in Chico, that won't have too huge of an effect because I would get, venture to say that in Chico here, I don't really know the stats, but I'd say 90% at least of all these mortgages are under 500000 for a new home purchase. Because most homes in Chico are not over 500000 But if you look at places like the Bay Area, Los Angeles, all the expensive places, those homes, it's hard to even find a home down there for under 500000 So here's what we're looking at on this front. The real estate lobby is going to be up in arms because now when people do a home purchase, they're calculating in the tax savings on their mortgage interest. Well, if they're looking at a house for a million two now and they're going to need to borrow a million dollars, they're only going to get to deduct half of the interest. So it's going to play a major role in how much a family in the Bay Area or someone where they're somewhere where the houses are very expensive, it's going to play a role in how much house they can buy now. So in my opinion, this is definitely going to be, uh, that one's going to be argued a lot. The real estate lobby is going to come out against that part and we'll just have to see how that all goes. But I don't think that one's going to be, that's not going to be an easy one to get through. Now, there's a little confusion in my talking points list that I've found here about state and local income tax, but it appears they're going to have a cap on the amount of tax expense you can write off, and it sounds like they're talking about $10,000. So right now, if you have, let's just say you have a couple with a $300,000 home and they make $80,000 they would have a tax write-off that's legal right now of property tax of probably $3,500 a year and state income tax of probably, say, three or 4000 a year. So that deduction probably wouldn't change too much between the old law and this proposed new law. Like I say, this is a long ways away from being passed, but these are the things they're trying to do. So that $10,000 limit isn't going to affect the average middle-income family. But it is going to affect the large earners in high-tax states like New York, California. And those people are going to end up having a cap of 10000 when they used to list twenty or 30000 in that category. So I will clarify that next time I talk about this tax reform bill. I'll try to keep you up on all this. Now, one of the big deals that really helps here is that they're going to repeal the alternative minimum tax. And that is something that I've been hoping happens for a long time. It's a it's a real onerous tax for anybody who has a large income year. And most people, most people never really hit this tax, but people who are like, I would say, doctors people that make three, four, three to four hundred thousand dollars instead of the average of eighty to a hundred thousand, they get this tax where it basically to make a 
simple analysis of this thing. It's very complicated, but it basically takes your taxable income that you calculate using all your tax laws like standard deduction, exemptions, all those things. Then it throws out some of the bigger deductions and says, okay, we're going to refigure your tax based on a whole different system. So it's like a parallel ghost tax system running running side by side with the regular tax system. Most people it doesn't affect. Some people it affects every year. And the by getting rid of this alternative minimum tax, it's actually going to make things a lot simpler for a lot of the higher income people who need to plan their taxes, plan their investments, but they can't really plan it sometimes because some of the things that they're trying to deduct from their taxes get basically thrown out and ignored for the purposes of the alternative minimum tax. So it's a very interesting tax. It's been around, I think, since about the 60s or 70s. I know it's been there ever since I started doing taxes in the early 80s, and it is just really a complicated, crazy calculation that really surprises some people and really uh, jumps up and bites people when they're not expecting it. So the fact that the Republican tax plan is proposing to repeal the alternative minimum tax to me is a good thing. And we'll see, of course, like I say, this is going to take months at least to get figured out and they may not agree on half of this stuff. The next point that's a big deal is the corporate tax rate would be lowered to 20%, down from 35%. Then, okay, that alone is huge because that would immediately make the United States a much better place for any company, including international companies, to come and make profits here because the tax rate is not so onerously high. The old 35%... Uh, maximum corporate rate is one of the highest in the whole world on corporate taxes, corporate tax rates. So most countries have figured out that if you lower the corporate tax, you will have a lot more businesses coming and doing more business, making profits. And I'm pretty sure that part of it has been a, it's been a major talking point ever since the campaign actually. So that one looks like they're sticking with the 20%. I I had heard a few weeks ago that they were debating making that one 25 instead of 20. But 20 is, to me, this sounds like a really good idea. But, you know, what am I to know? I'm a, a single CPA in Chico, California, helping mainly middle-class people and small businesses. But there's a good reason to incorporate your business if this tax rate goes down to 20%. And that's another way now people would be able to plan. If they have this new kind of tax law with all these new rates, there's whole areas of tax planning that change for people based on what the opportunities are now with a rate going from 35 to 20. That that one's a big deal. Now, this thing about reducing the tax rate on business income to no more than 25%, That's kind of a little bit of an oddball, uh, but the bottom line is it would encourage people to set up a, like an LLC or a separate business entity from just being a sole proprietor. But I also read a little further down on these talking points that it's not going to apply to professional type income, like doctors and lawyers and accountants and architects and things like that. So that's not going to be a way for everyone to reduce their taxes, but there will be some tax planning available for people that are self-employed that aren't in what they call the professional fields, but that one could have some potential for some good tax planning. So uh, it also says in the talking points here, allows businesses, sorry, I'm just, I'm reading this as I go because it just came out this morning. Uh, Write off the full cost of new equipment. Well, right now, right now you can write off up to $500,000 per year of new equipment. So I'm not sure what the limitations are on that. That's another thing I'll be looking up. I'll be updating you on this each business buzz so that I can get you up to speed. But according to this, it just says 
allowing you to write off purchases of new equipment, which may mean they're not going to cap that at $500,000. So I need to look that one up because larger businesses could really save a lot of tax if that $500,000 cap were to be repealed or made uh, infinite, or, or at least up to the amount of net income. In fact, that's the way it is right now. If your business only nets $100,000, but you spend 500000 in new equipment, you're only allowed to write off the amount up to the 100000 of your net income. So you don't get to do the full amount unless your net income allows it. So that's another, that's another limitation. And I don't want to bore you guys too much with all this, but it may affect some of you. The other thing the talking points mention is that the estate tax, which is the death tax, that's the one where uh, if you die with too much, too many assets, they take a big chunk of them and it's like 40% right now. That's the estate tax. So if somebody dies with $50 million and they didn't do the proper estate planning, they could lose 40% of the amount over $5 million, which is the exemption. Now, the basic taxpayer that I know does not have $5 million of net worth, but there are quite a few that do, especially with things like homes in the Bay Area are now 2 or $3 million in certain areas. You know, these things can climb up there. So this new tax plan is proposing to phase out this deal until the year 2024, and then it goes to zero. So they're looking at some sort of five- or six-year phase-out where this estate tax drops to zero. So I'm not sure how this phase-out's going to work, but that's the way they're talking about it. So that is just a little bit of a boiling down of what I see as these talking points the new tax plan proposed is going to have. It'll all get monkeyed with. I'm figuring... If the rates don't go down as low as they say they're trying to get to right now, we're going to end up with something very close to what we've always had with some stricter limitations like that home mortgage deduction for people in high home price areas. That's going to hurt. The real estate industry is going to fight it, but that's one that's really going to be a big talking point later. So We're going to take a break. I'll be back with Business Buzz. I'm going to have a little bit of a tax education seminar today. I've got a lot of good information for you, so stay tuned. And I'm going to educate you about how to save taxes on your business and your tax return. So we'll be right back. Rock House Dining and Espresso is known for their patio. Enjoy the ducks and chickens visiting the patio in their environmental, farm-fresh, lively atmosphere. Rock House is an iconic landmark in Butte County since the 1930s. Seven minutes north of the Lime Saddle Bridge, only two miles past the hardware store. Originally built in 1937, the two buildings served as restaurant and tavern, shower house, barber shop, gas station, and cafe. The coffee shop is a cozy hangout spot, great for coffee and conversation, and working as both functioning dining and a fun look back at our rich Butte County history. Visit the patio and enjoy. Rock House serves burgers, pizza, coffee, and smoothies. Enjoy music and great ambiance, conversations, and service. Don't forget the awesome iced coffee. And the fruit smoothies are only $4.25, or order a large for just 70 cents more. On Highway 70 in Yankee Hill. With home mortgage rates still near historic lows, now is a great time to buy or refinance. Michael Humes is your one-stop mortgage lender. Michael Humes and his knowledgeable staff are well-versed in a wide variety of loan types, including FHA, Fannie Mae, USDA, HomePath, and HARP. For a free evaluation of your mortgage needs, call him, 530-624-7942. That's 530-624-7942. 
Be sure to listen to Michael's Mortgage Market Update every Wednesday at 2.30 on Your Home Today. This is Michael Humes, Mortgage Specialist at Network Mortgage, located at 155 East 3rd Avenue. Then I'm License 230273, BRE License 01250862, employed by Network Mortgage, BRE License 01840139, NMLS License 358237, Equal Housing Opportunity. Welcome back to Business Buzz. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I wanted to go over and basically go over what it's like. One of my most common questions I get is, how long do I have to keep my tax records? Well, the basic rule for the IRS is that tax records have to be kept for three years after the filing of the tax return. So your basic starting rule is that you keep everything you used for your deductions and your income, like your bank statements, your invoices. If you're, Of course, being self-employed, you have a lot more records to keep than just if you're a wage earner. When you're a wage earner, your deductions are mainly things like home mortgage interest, property tax, charitable contributions, and those things apply to this time limit also. There's just a lot less things to keep track of if you're not a self-employed person. But for everyone, the rule is you keep all of the backup for three years from the filing of the tax return. So if you file by April 15, not on extension, so the 2016 taxes that you did this year were due April, well, it was actually April 18th, but I'll just call it the 15th. April 15th of 2017 was the due date. They have until April 15 of 2020, which is three years after that, to audit you or to send you a letter and ask for details. So that's why you have to keep that stuff for three years. If they were to send you a letter after that date asking for anything, you would simply say, no, the statute of limitations is over and you can't ask me any of that. The trick here is that there are some things that extend their statute to allow them more time. Here's the way that works. If a taxpayer understates his gross income by over 20%, so let's just say your gross income on your business should have been listed as $500,000 and you listed something under $400,000. That's a 20% difference because you're, you're under 20%, you're, you've skipped 20% of your income or more. If you were to do that, there's a 10-year statute of limitations. And it's not that they're going to try to audit a nine-year-old tax return in this situation. What happens here is if somebody was actually underreporting their gross income and they, during, and they found this out during an audit of a recent year, then they would say, hmm, let's go back and look at the last nine years. And then if, the, if they do find an underreporting of 20% of the gross income that you were supposed to have reported, then they can go back and assess new taxes on those old years up to 10 years back. But for the average person who's reporting all their income, like everybody pretty much does, especially wage earners, when you're a wage earner, your W-2 income is already in the IRS's file. So it's not like you can actually like ignore those W-2s and say you didn't earn that money. So the normal situation is you save your papers for three years. Now, the state of California can go back four years instead of three. The thing about the state of California is they don't normally do audit work they piggyback off of the IRS. That's why they need the one-year thing. So if the IRS contacts you on April 10th of 2020 asking you about 2016, they're within their legal right to do that. Well, you know, whether these things are really rights uh, is another matter of debate, but legally they can do it. 
So the state gets one year added on to that in their statute situation because by the time the IRS does an audit of you and takes three or four months getting it done, the April 15th, 2020 timeframe has passed, but the state is going to piggyback off of the IRS audit. The state does not have an audit mechanism for basic individual taxes that they send people out like the IRS does. They basically just follow the IRS's findings and then bill you for those. So if you have an IRS audit and you end up owing $500 of tax because of some changes they made in this audit, a few months after the IRS audit gets final, you will get a letter from the state saying, okay, this extra income that the IRS assessed, we're now assessing, so you owe us 150 bucks or whatever the ratio works out to be. It's normally less than the, the, uh, the rates for the state tax is usually less than the federal tax, so the balance due is usually, usually less. So that's the basic rule of how long to keep records. And what I tell people is, if you go back five calendar years, you pretty much cover the four years of the state and the three years of the federal. So I tell people five calendar years. So right now, since 2016 has dropped off the radar and it's in the three-year statute, uh, they can basically go back right now to 16, 15, and 14. The state can go back to 13. So you can now throw away five years back, which is 2012. One of the mistakes people could make when I tell them they can get rid of things from 2012 and before is the other little catch. Any property that you still own, any records for that property, including stocks, bonds, investments, houses, rental properties, land, those receipts need to be kept forever or until after you've sold the property. So don't think that the five-year rule applies to records having to do with, say, your home purchase. You need to keep those in a permanent file. You may sell that home or you may rent that home out. At that point, 10 or 20 years from now, you will need to access the cost basis of that home. Now, right now, there's an exemption for gains on sales of principal residences that is very liberal. For single people, it's $250,000. For married couples, it's $500,000. So if you sell a home, if you're a married couple and you've lived in the home for more than two years and the home sells for a price under $500,000, they're not even required to send a statement to the government that you sold that home. Because that is, uh, when you sell the home, you sign some papers at the title company that says, yes, this is my principal residence. So that ends up being basically a tax-free gain, and that's a huge that's a huge tax savings. It's one of the biggest deals in the tax law. And I have not seen any of these talking points about the new Republican tax plan that mentions anything about getting rid of that. But I'm going to be doing a lot of research over the next week or two when this thing comes out in detail, and I will keep you posted on what they're talking about. I won't spend a lot of time on everything because, like I say, this is just a proposal. It's going to change a lot between now and the time something does end up getting passed. So why spend hours and hours analyzing this proposal when chances are most of it's not going to be passed in the form that you're looking at? It is good, though, to know what you're facing as far as likely changes based on what they're proposing, such as the cap on state and local income tax being $10,000 deduction. That's a big deal for people who have been deducting $30,000 a year of that tax. That's going to be a tax planning effect. So we look at these things with these tax proposals as possibilities and just get a good idea of what they're talking about, but we don't count on any of them. It's sort of like this thing with the minimum tax being proposed to go away. We just don't want to plan on that happening. We need to know when it passes, we'll know. But until then, we can't really plan on that. That's not the way you look at these proposed tax laws. But I'm going to get into some more good tax tips in a few minutes after the break. I especially want to address 
what does it take when you're self-employed? What do you need to do to save taxes? What do you need to do to not be in the ire of the IRS? And we'll be right back with Business Buzz in just a minute. Scalpel. Scalpel. Suction. There's a bleeder there, doctor. Suction. Cautery. Thank you, nurse. You're welcome, sir. Clamp. Suture. Mayo scissors. That's pretty good work, doctor. Well, that should do it for his appendix. Would you like me to close him up? No, no, let's take a look around. Doctor? Well, he didn't need his appendix. Gotta be other stuff he doesn't need, like this thing. Doctor, that's his kidney. Yeah, he's got another one. And this, why on earth anyone needs a pancreas, I'll never know. Doctor, I think that was important. Nah, he'll never even know it's gone. And this is ugly. That doesn't mean it's not important. Ooh, and look, I doubt he needs this. Whoops. My bad. Uh, nurse, you, uh, wanna sew that up quickly? Ever feel like you're not important? God made you, and that makes you important. Another message from Lifeline Productions, the comic strip of radio at lifelinepro.com. Business Buzz is back. I'm really happy today because one of the most common questions I get is... I'm now self-employed. What do I need to do? How is this going to work? I'd like to share some real good information with you because this can save you lots and lots of money. When you're an employee, one of the big taxes that affects everybody's called the Social Security and Medicare tax. It actually is comes to a total of 15.3% of your earnings. When you're an employee, your employer pays half of that and you pay the other half and it gets withheld. That's what you see on your earnings statement and it's 7.65% of your earnings that get withheld. The employer matches that. The problem for self-employed persons is that they're responsible for paying the entire 15.3%, both both halves, basically. So if you are, let's just say you're earning 100000 in your wages, you're going to get 7600 or so withheld during the year for your share of the Social Security tax. But if you have $100,000 of net income from being self-employed, you're going to owe $15,300 in self-employment tax on that 100000 This is the tax that trips most small business owners up when they first become self-employed. If they come to me early, I can tell them in advance how this is going to work, and I can instruct them on a round number, approximate percentage of their gross income based on what we project their net income to be, and we have that person put that money into a savings account so that when the taxes due, they have the money in a savings that they can pay. One of the issues is you only pay tax on your net income, not your gross. So you can never really be exact on this, but you can end up being pretty close. And of course, the problem for this is in the first year, you've never done it before. And if you're now self-employed, you need to be prepared in advance for the tax that's going to be due. And it's always based on the net income from your business, not the gross. So you may have one, one person, if your business is, say, selling, I don't know, selling used cars, you could have a million dollars gross income, but you might only net $100,000, let us say that. In that case, you're not your tax is going to be the 15,000 self-employment tax, but it's, you can't go off of the gross sales. You have to go off the net. One other thing that happens is if you're self-employed, but you're married and your spouse has a good job earning wages, then you're going to have your net income tacked on to the spouse's wages. 
And that's going to not only generate the self-employment tax on your net income, it's also going to generate regular tax. And with the tax rates the way they are right now, that could very well be 25% regular federal tax, 15% Social Security tax, and 9% state of California income tax. Well, if you add 25, 15, and 9, you do get just under 50%. So when you're self-employed, it's very common to have 50% of your net income, based on other circumstances, as tax liability. So when people come to me and say, is it even worth it for me to work? I say, well, you know, knowing that for every extra $1,000 of net income you make, uh, just about $500 of it is going to go out to taxes. Knowing that, then that's where you have to make your decision as to whether it's worth it to you to do that. I personally, you know, it, it's just hard to say. This comes into play a lot of times when someone's like retiring but they get offered a consulting job. So you'll have a, a person that's retired, but they got pretty good income from their, theirs and their wives' pension kind of thing. And they say, well, the state of California is able to pay me $10,000 to do some consulting this year. And I look at their other tax rates and I say, well, that's fine. But if you do that, you're only going to keep half of it. So that's how you make the decision of whether it's worth it to do that extra self-employed income when the total tax bracket is basically 50%. Now, also for self-employed people, you can see that with that sort of tax rate on the net income, it's a very high tax bracket line of work, whatever you're doing. Being self-employed is going to get expensive income tax-wise. The solution to that is you need to be legally lowering your net income to the lowest possible legal number so that that tax is as low as it goes. I'll just touch on some of the items that come into play as far as questions that people have for me, and that should answer a lot of things. One of the key deductions for some people's self-employed earnings is their vehicle usage. That can be sort of tricky, but it's not super complicated once you understand the concept. You can either take the mileage rate or you can depreciate the vehicle. Usually, unless you have a real expensive vehicle that weighs a lot of pounds like a giant four-door truck with a long bed, it's usually just easier overall to take the mileage rate over the life of the vehicle because your record keeping is is a lot easier. All you have to do is keep odometer readings and prove your total miles and your business miles based on your logs of business driving. It's nicer than having to save every little gas receipt and add those up, but of course that's, you know, that can be done also. It just depends on how much time do you want to spend doing your own record keeping. But the standard mileage rate is a good way to go. It changes a little each year. I believe right now it's around 53 or 54 cents. I haven't looked it up lately, but it the 2017 mileage rate's already been set. I just don't have that memorized right at the moment. But it's around 53 or 54 cents per mile. Now with this new gas tax we've got that Jerry O'Lennon was talking about this morning, they should raise that a little bit because... These things are all going to factor in, but the IRS does the mileage rate based on a national average, so they're not going to they're not going to go to California personally and say, "Oh, you get another penny." So that won't happen. But the other question I get a lot is, "What about the home office deduction?" And then everybody says it's a red flag. I say it's only a red flag if you're not doing it correctly. Because if you actually do have a principal office of business in your home that's a separate room and it's only business, those are the main criteria, it's a very good deduction to save that crazy self-employment tax. Because you're allowed to take that percentage of square footage of that legitimate principal office of your business 
and take the interest and tax deduction that normally go on the individual deductions, and that portion of it gets to go against your Schedule C net income. And remember, that's where the high tax bracket comes in because it gets the regular tax plus the 15.3% Social Security tax, and that's where the tax savings can really start adding up. So the home office deduction, if it's legitimate, it's a really good deduction. I wouldn't call it a red flag if the square footage percentage is not too high. The times in my 30-plus years career of doing taxes that I have seen questions from the IRS about home offices is when the percentage is too high for their computer. They don't like to see that percentage over 10 to 15%. When it gets to be 20% or more, it does get a little bit, it looks funny to them. So that's one thing about the home office deduction, but do not overlook the home office deduction just because you think it's a red flag. If it's legitimate, it's a very good way to save taxes. When we come back, I'm going to start talking uh, in the last segment here about another question a lot of people have, and it's a way to save a ton of tax if it fits. So be right back with Business Buzz. Don't go anywhere. This is Buzz Beatty. You know, there's nothing like needing a plumber but not feeling confident who to call. I'm sure glad someone referred me to Gold Bond Plumbing. Gordon did a great job replacing my water heater and repairing the damage the old one caused. In fact, I'm so happy with Gold Bond Plumbing that I've asked Gordon to be a regular guest on Your Home Today. If you need a plumber who works like a bear for a price that's fair, call Gold Bond Plumbing at 321-4203. Now also serving Corning. Orland and Willows. License number 933-807. Rockhouse Dining and Espresso is known for their patio. Enjoy the ducks and chickens visiting the patio in their environmental, farm-fresh, lively atmosphere. Rockhouse is an iconic landmark in Butte County since the 1930s. Seven minutes north of the Lime Saddle Bridge, only two miles past the hardware store. Originally built in 1937, the two buildings served as restaurant and tavern. Shower house, barber shop, gas station, and cafe. Working as both functioning dining and a fun look back at our rich Butte County history. Don't forget the awesome iced coffee. And the fruit smoothies are only $4.25 or order a large for just 70 cents more. Daily soups and occasional journey soups. Always an adventure, never the same. Yummy creative vegetarian offerings as well as fantastic Reuben and French dip sandwiches. Yum! Or try their tasty wraps or the awesome fresh coleslaw at Rockhouse Dining and Espresso on Highway 70 in Yankee Hill. Welcome back to Business Buzz. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA. You can contact me, 895-3353. I'm always happy to help. I offer a free initial consultation. I've helped a lot of people over the last 30 or so years doing taxes, doing some bookkeeping, whatever you might need. I'm a real good second opinion for financial advice also. I'm not a, I'm not a licensed um, certified financial planner. But I can definitely give you a good second opinion if you're not sure of what you're being told to do with your investments. So I promised you before the break that I wanted to get into a topic for the IRS tax world that is very helpful for certain people. And even if it's not something that you are directly interested in or directly qualify for, you may know somebody who is and it's a very helpful thing, and there's a lot of mistakes that can be made in this whole world of what I'm going to talk about right now, which is called the offer in compromise. There is a plan with the, if you owe income tax to the IRS, but you can't pay it, 
there's a couple of solutions. One solution is called an installment agreement where you just sign up to pay it monthly and then you work out a way to, you know, you need to make sure you pay enough to get it paid off within a year because you don't ever want to have more than one year going on that. But the installment agreement is one way to take care of your taxes, but it runs kind of like a credit card. It ends up being about a 14% credit card equivalent when you have an installment agreement for unpaid IRS taxes. But it is a way for you to legally not be under the gun and in big trouble all the time. You're legally set up with an agreement and they don't bother you as long as that payment gets made every month on time. So that's the one thing that happens if you owe taxes. The other thing is if you qualify, you can actually settle your debt with the IRS for a number a lot lower than the amount that you owe. There's a couple of main tricks to this that make it to where you would qualify for an offer or not. And the number one, the number one thing is what is your disposable monthly income? So they, they have you fill out a form where you show that after your living expenses, your rent or your mortgage payment, your groceries, your medical, your vehicle expenses, based on the number of family members you have, that calculation gets done on this form. And the lower that number is, the better off you'll be. So you arrive at a number that says, okay, after all my expenses, and this would happen, let's say let's say you had a real good year, but something happened to your business. And so you owe a bunch of money, but now your business is way down and you don't have that same income. This is where this comes into play. So let's just use some numbers as examples. Let's say you can show that after all of the allowable expenses, which are all the basics like uh, living expense, rent and mortgage, groceries, medical, transportation. Let's say after that you come down to a line that says that you have $400 a month available. They have a formula and it basically takes that $400 times 12 and if you can pay that amount off within five months of the agreement being accepted, that will be the formula for what they'll make you pay. And so in that case, that would be like $4,800. If you couldn't pay that within the five-month period, but you could pay it over two years, they make you, they make you double that amount, and your settlement amount would be $9,600. Now, it's not quite this simple, but that's the general framework of how this thing works. The other side of the coin to whether they'll allow you to have this offer accepted by them is do you have equity in any property or do you have a lot of net worth? So here's how that works. If you have home equity of $100,000 and let's say you owe taxes of $25,000 and your formula comes out to where the offer might be five or $6,000, they will not accept an offer of $4,800 for your $25,000 that you owe them if you have a house with $100,000 of equity. That is how this whole thing works. So they will just simply put a lien on your house for the $25,000 and they'll just say, we're calling you uncollectible right now but if that house ever sells, we get the first 25000 So that's how they protect themselves. So, so the real secret to the offer and compromise is, number one, do you have enough monthly income to just pay an installment agreement over six years and pay it off? Or if you don't have a lot of monthly income, the second question is, do you have equity in property that means that we can just attach something and get our money that way. And they especially like real estate for that category. So that is the offer and compromise. What I wanted to talk about with the offer and compromise is one of the biggest mistakes that I see people make. It has nothing to do with filling out forms wrong, wrongly. It has nothing to do with doing the wrong math. 
What it has to do with is calling an 800 number from a television ad that says, if you owe the IRS 10000 or more, uh, we can get them off your back. We can fix it. We have our professionals here. Every client that I've talked to that has actually dealt with one of those before they talked to me has ended up not getting the help that they really needed. And the reason is it's too expensive. These big firms that specialize in this, like I say, it's not rocket science. It's a, it's about a six-page form that you need to fill out. Then the offer itself is only one or two pages. They change it a little now and then, but it's, I think it's a two-page form. And then it's just a matter of waiting for the IRS to either accept your offer or send you a letter back and say, you know, we need clarification on these medical expenses. Send us three months worth of bills for that, something like that. So it's not an easy process, I would say, but it's not rocket science. And you don't need, <coughs> excuse me, you don't need to send somebody three or $4,000 retainer that you'll never get back in order to do this. My office is happy to help you with looking at the offer. Uh, The main thing is I can screen your numbers and let you know and say, hey, I don't think you're a good offer candidate. This house you own with this equity is going to nullify that. But these people on television don't ask you that before they take your money. And so that is, that's, that's sort of a problem. Plus they know that Anyone, you know, just any taxpayer who owes the IRS and can't pay it is not going to have the 2500 to pay them. So that's why they make you do that up front, promising you the moon, and then they work out all the paperwork. And like I say, in my experience, and I haven't had that many cases where personally I've been involved with attorneys, but my experience is retainers never come back. No matter what, uh, you, you, you do the math and you say, okay, for this little real estate issue I've got, I'm just thinking about one I had about 30 or 40 years ago. For this real estate issue I've got, I'm going to send this attorney that I have to hire out of town, 2500 bucks. But if he does four hours at $200, I'll get a check for 1700 bucks back in a couple months. Well, it never happens. Uh, if you, anybody, if any of you have a retainer, that's come back from someone, I'd be interested in hearing it because I've never seen one. So if you are a candidate for an offer, you should talk to a local CPA, a local EA, which is an enrolled agent, uh, talk to a local tax professional and just see if you can get a free consultation like I offer and just verify before you spend any money with anybody that you don't know, you know, am I a candidate for this offer to be accepted. And it's not that hard to figure out. And that's just one area that I like to mention because I have seen people that have sent money to these large firms and it just wasn't necessary. I'm not saying they don't get the job done. Uh, They do have attorneys, CPAs, enrolled agents. They've got people on board to do the work, but I think they overcharge. And I just hate to see somebody who's already hurting Obviously, if you can't pay the IRS, you're already hurting for money. I hate to see you send 2500 bucks or more off to some firm in Texas and it ends up where you never get that back. Even if they do solve it, it's kind of like they charge you too much. So that's sort of the way I feel about the offer and compromise world. And I... I've got some great stories about offers. They're always fun when they get accepted, but the one I liked the best was a man who had had a self-employed business as a truck driver. Things went bad when the law changed and they had to retrofit their older trucks with diesel smog situation parts that was very expensive. And essentially this man ended up having to go out of business and now he's just a wage earner doesn't make a whole lot as a driver, but this 20 something thousand that he owed over a three or four year period that he couldn't pay at the time, we did an offer and it ended up where this $20,000 total tax bill got settled 
for $49. And I just, I always get a kick out of that because it was a, um, you know, it's just that this is why this thing is in place. Why should they spend, why should the IRS and the government spend their resources tracking down a guy that owes 20000 that he's never going to have the income or the equity in anything to pay off. It's a waste of their time. It's a waste of taxpayer money. And so they have this offer program to just basically streamline things for people who, you know, don't have the ability to pay that kind of thing. So that's what the offer's all about. If you think you might be a candidate and you need an offer, Give me a call, 895-3353. We can sit down and go over your basic numbers, and we can basically see whether you are a candidate to get an offer accepted. If you aren't, it's like why bother to, um, you know, why bother to pay somebody to do a bunch of paperwork if they're not going to accept it anyway? There's another interesting offer case that I helped with, and this is probably about 20 years ago, and it stemmed from a client who was new to me because they had moved to California from New Jersey, and the casinos in New Jersey had a big giant IRS audit, and they found that all the people working at the casino had not been reporting tip income, and their tip income was not done correctly for a lot of employees with a lot of dollar amounts. So everyone who worked for these casinos basically got a letter from the IRS saying, okay, here's all the tip income our audit has decided you earned and you owe X amount of tax on that income. That was a shocker for these people who didn't have a whole lot of money. The interesting thing about these people that I was helping was that at the time they were just a little bit ahead of receiving some inherited property and money from a, from a relative who was real sick. So they knew that if they didn't, I told them about how the offer worked and it's like, if we don't get this offer in before somebody passes away, you're going to be technically in line for this inheritance. And, you know, so we did it uh, quickly because they didn't want to do this after somebody died because once somebody dies, when there's a revocable trust, that trust can be changed at any time. So as long as the person that's going to leave you something in an inheritance, as long as they're still alive, you don't have any asset in that. Anyway, to make a long story short, we got this done before these uh, person passed away. These people got about $20,000 settled for about $2,000, and it was a very happy ending. So th- that's all I have for today. I'm trying to keep you well-informed on these new tax laws. I'm going to learn a lot more about it over the next week or so. I'll keep you posted. So come back to Business Buzz every day at 3 o'clock, and I'll see you next time. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Take care.
KKXX, Paradise, K280GL, Chico, and K283AR, Chico, Yuba City, Marysville. Have you ever thought you'd like to buy and sell houses but didn't know how or where to begin? Do you fear your job is in jeopardy or is your business income reduction keeping you awake at night? We're in the best time in 25 years to make a fortune in real estate without using your money or credit. My name is Ron Legrand, and I've taught a half a million people to do just that and personally bought hundreds of houses myself. If you'll call 800-495-1836, 24 hours, and leave your information, I'll send the first 500 callers my hot new CD, Fortunes in Foreclosures, and my best-selling book to help you get started absolutely free. I'll show you how to build a six-figure income part-time with no previous experience and no license, even if you're a busy professional. Call 800-495-1836, 24 hours, and get my new book and CD free. That's 800-495-1836. Take your life back and make this your best year ever. Call 800-495-1836. Come gather around people wherever you roam. 